Hello, I am Liam McEwen and welcome to the Big Leads Press Pass podcast. Today we are joined by Kyle Newbeck from Philly Voice to talk some Sixers. Kyle, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And to start, as always, how about, Kyle, you just take us through your journey in sports media from when you first realized that this was something you wanted to do to where you are now covering the Sixers for Philly Boys? All right. Well, it's a bit of a long and winding journey, so I guess you're going to have to strap in for this one. Folks. So I actually, I originally went to school, when I say school, when I went to college, thinking I was going to be a teacher. And, and even then, that was sort of a decision I made because I didn't, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I just happened to have a, an elementary school teacher growing up that had a big impact on myself and my friends. And I said, hey, you know what, if I can't really think of like a specific thing I, I want to do, I would want to shoot for, you know, like doing something that brings some good into the world, has impact on people's lives. So I went to a state school in Pennsylvania because that's number one, it was affordable. Number two, it was a good teaching school. Mm-hmm. So I end up, I'm about, I don't know, let's say too late into the process. So like two and a half, three years in when I realized like, I, I like the idea of working with kids and helping them and so on and so forth, but I didn't necessarily want to teach and deal with all the, the extracurriculars, the, the, dealing with parents and, you know, Mm -hmm. standardized testing, all the the nonsense. And I was dating a girl at the time who was in the major with me, who just happened to be like, you should just write. Like you like, you enjoy writing, you, you, you're opinionated, you're good at expressing your opinions, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. She's like, just, just figure something out. Um, And so I, I make the decision that it, and it took me basically right up until I was supposed to student teach which is not the ideal time to decide you're not going to teach. But I switched majors to more of a writing uh, journalism focus. I actually, I stopped living on campus and moved home because I grew up about 45 minutes to an hour from where I went to school. So that was very fortunate in that I was able to do that without necessarily like bankrupting myself. I'm in plenty of loan debt, but you know, it is what it is. Everybody is these days. Yeah. Um, and as I started, you know, taking these focused classes to like sharpen my writing, learn like actual journalism skills, I started reaching out to local magazines, radio stations, mm-hmm. uh, TV stations, just trying to get any sort of media experience. I didn't necessarily know if I wanted to be a writer. I knew I wanted to do something media based. Uh, and the first, I guess the first major internship I got after having some like online I, I wrote for dime magazine I wrote for different places like that as a an intern when that still existed mm-hmm. uh, I got an internship with sports radio WIP which is like the longest running sports only radio station in Philadelphia and I got that because Spike Eskin who is now their program director is a big Sixers guy and him and I used to just kind of like chop it up on Twitter talk about the Sixers before they were as interesting as they are now or were during the process. This was probably like 2013 or so. So right before, you know, like all this got started. And so I got to intern for WIP's morning show, which is their big flagship show for the station. And this was during Chip Kelly's first season 
Oh boy. Coaching the Eagles. So it was obviously that it was like a big national story, everything they were doing. They come out of the gates flying. And so so my daily schedule during that time was I would leave my house. And when I say my house, I left my parents' house in the suburbs at three o'clock in the morning to get to Philly by four AM to meet for like pre show meetings. There, I would do all kinds of pre-production research, and you know, the, the, basically, what was stressed to me is we need to find unique angles and like mm-hmm. something that maybe other people aren't talking about. And that, that that process, even though it was in radio, was extremely helpful for me yeah. in terms of like looking for different angles for writing. So I, I actually ended up after that internship ended, I did some other stuff. I ended up graduating maybe like a year later and I got, I took a, it was like a part-time job with them while I was freelancing writing wise. Mm-hmm. And I would do, I was basically just cutting up sound and working with some of their shows at night. And you like, I, I think that was a very important job for me, both in terms of, you know, the connections you make, you're working one-on-one with these people. Mm-hmm. Um, and just like the the process of being part of a, a show like that. But those days where I would get there at four in the morning, then leave the show at 10 a.m., drive to my school out in the suburbs, be in classes for from about noon until 9 p.m., drive an hour home, go to sleep at 10, and then wake up at 2.30. So that was my life for about six months. And that's that's one of the things I always stress to kids who like college kids, high school kids who are interested in getting in this business is I tell them like, you got to be prepared for everybody who works in this industry who works insanely hard and you're going to have to make mm. sacrifices that you don't even necessarily think you're capable of as you're doing them. So the radio opens up a bunch of doors I, and all during this time, I'm blogging for different uh, basketball outlets. I would say a decent amount of them are probably defunct now, but if you name a, uh, a conglomerate of sports blogs, I have probably written for them. I wrote for uh, true hoop network. I wrote for SB nation. I wrote for fan sided. I wrote for bleacher report. Uh, later on, I wrote for complex doing stuff where that was more, uh, a mix of sports and pop culture. I got to write about music there. Mm. And so all along, I'm just trying to like find my niche. And at a certain point in time, because I'd written so much about the Sixers and I was one of the people, I guess, at the forefront of uh, pro process media, I guess you could call us. Uh, I got to run Liberty Ballers, which was the SB Nation Sixers blog at the time. And I would say I was in charge there I don't know how long I was like the main guy there, but at least for a year or two after writing there for a year or two before that. And I actually got to sort of shape the website and my vision. And, you know, during those days, the actual product itself wasn't very good. So you're writing about, you're focusing on the draft and you're finding creative ways to write about a a 10 win team. And then the summer of 2017 is actually when I quit my a part-time job at WIP and had transitioned into freelancing full-time. So mm-hmm. I was running Liberty Ballers and then writing, doing like news writing for Complex. So that was, you know, everything from sports news to 
LeVar Ball, I guess, is technically sports news, but we were like the LeVar Ball leaders, I guess, in, in internet coverage to writing about like the Jenners and the Kardashians. And so, you know, you learn to write about things and cover things that you aren't necessarily personally interested in, which is not how a lot of people want to go about their day, but mm. I thought that was very helpful. And then later that summer, after only a few months of being just freelance writing full time, uh, Philly, one of the editors at Philly Voice reached out to me because their Sixers guy had taken a job with the Athletic. So I, yeah. I have not been hired by the Athletic, but I was one of the people <laughs> who actually benefited from the Athletic existing. So I took that job and now it's been, I guess, about two and a half years. It'll be three years in September that I've been with Philly Voice. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's my story. Yeah. Wow. That is uh, quite a winding journey, as you described. <laughs> uh, one of the things that yeah. did stand out to me is the quite the impressive resume of freelance work that you've done. And freelance work is obviously way different in a lot of ways from having a beat journalism job. But just from the aspect of uh, writing, how did that freelance experience sort of help you develop those journalistic skills that you have today? Uh, well, number one, I think it, the, the important, the most important lesson I learned is that you have to be prepared to either be told no or to fail because half the battle with freelancing is reaching out to people, at least in the early days that may not necessarily know who you are like the the whole trick with becoming a writer in this era especially becoming a freelance writer is that you have to build enough of a name and reputation for yourself that people are going to to want to work with you to to pay you for your work even though you're not like a full-time employee and so the the early battle for me was just like building up enough clips and saying hey here's some stuff that i've written Mm -hmm. i have this idea and trying to make those contacts. And, you know, there were some people that I never actually ended up writing for. Like one example, if you're familiar with David Ross, who he's written a lot of places, was at Deadspin, mm. SB Nation, several places. I think he ran Vice Sports when I had reached out to him. But I sent him an email at one point and just getting an email back from him saying, hey, I don't think this is a fit for us, but let me put you in touch with uh, so-and-so I don't remember who he gave me contact information for but valuing like that sort of stuff is very important like not even just the, the actual writing product and you know it's like one of those old school sayings is like who you know is is as important as what you know and you know it, sometimes that comes off as it's like the, it's a closed door thing or you can't get in and you know people have a leg up on you but I think how I take that and I've applied it to my life, it's like you have to value relationships and you have to make time for people that maybe like you don't feel like going to an event that's a couple hours away that you're only going to get to spend, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 minutes talking to the people you need to talk to. But if you go there and you show up constantly and your face is, you, you put a face to your name that's really helpful. And eventually what I found is that starts to snowball and, you mm-hmm. know, enough people know you and you're at least my Twitter and uh, writing following grew enough that I was able to start uh, turning that into an actual career. Yeah, absolutely. Relationships are cru- more crucial in this business than in most. The other part of your journey that I thought was interesting was that you were kind of the head honcho over at Liberty Ballers for a while. 
And then you transition back into just being like a writer and the cog and machine sort of thing. What did that experience running the site and kind of being able to shape it to your own image, as you said, kind of, and now that you have a couple of years in retrospect, how did that help you going forward? Well, number one, I kind of learned that, you know, I don't at least yet want to be an editor. Like I do think it was good for me to be in the practice of, okay, I'm taking somebody else's work and cutting out all the fat. And I, I think that when I sit down and right now, I, I think one of my biggest problems is writing too much even still, but you know, you learn to, to take out paragraphs or ideas that aren't necessarily important and you learn to stop writing without so many qualifiers in your work. Like the way that you're going to have people respect your opinion is if you're actually willing to take a stance on things and not always waffle. And you know, that doesn't mean you necessarily have to be right or that you're going to be, you're going to make a living out of being wrong all the time just because you have a strong opinion. But, you know, that was something that I learned to help other people with that. It's, I, I think one of the things that's benefited me, and this is not necessarily my own opinion, it's what other editors told me early on is that I always had kind of a strong voice. I guess I come from an opinionated family, so I never had a problem speaking up and speaking my mind, regardless of uh, what the subject happens to be at the time. I don't back down from uh, confrontation that sometimes is, you know, that, that cuts both ways. You got to learn how to pick your battles sometimes. But, but yeah, I, I think being an editor too, it taught you how to advocate for your people. Like back in those days, working for SB Nation, there were the issues and there are still the issues. I'm sure I'm not there anymore. So I couldn't tell you with like people getting paid enough, if at all. And so a lot of time was spent, you know, behind the scenes working with uh, my guys that I was trying to bring along that I thought had interesting things to say that I thought certainly for putting work in were worthy of being paid. And so, you know, that's, you learn to, you wear a lot of different hats and even if you don't necessarily actively use them in your current job, I think it was, it's good experience to have to lead in that capacity rather than just, you know, you defer to your editors and you just go to work, report, write and, and do your thing. I thought that was a very, very useful experience, especially because at that time, because of the, uh, where we were within the Philadelphia media landscape, we had a pretty significant voice between the group of us and a lot of people that were writing for that site have now gone on to full-time professional media careers. I would say the, I, I'm, I'm a little biased here, but I think the <laughs> best and some of the most important people covering the Sixers right now all sort of came from that group that stuck together during those years. So we, uh, I think we all owe a little something to each other. Yeah, for sure. Very eloquent way to put it. And I think you're, you're allowed to be a little biased when you were, you know, the Liberty Ballers guy. <laughs> I, I suppose. I don't even know if I would say I was the Liberty Ballers guy. I just so happened to have the uh, the keys to the car at some point. They trusted me not to get behind the wheel after drinking. <laughs> well, you didn't crash, so all the better, right? Yeah. I, well, I haven't crashed yet. You never Ever, know in this business. Okay. <laughs> Knocking on wood for you. <laughs> But anyway, yeah, now you, uh, you know, you're a full-time journalist and you now find yourself in, um, well, really an unprecedented situation for somebody in your position. How are you kind of dealing with still continuing to put out content and do your job while there are, is no basketball? Uh, well, 
to circle back to the the blog, I, I think that a lot of the things I've learned during that blog journey have helped me now. And like, you know, there's not always live sports on the calendar. And even when there are live sports, sometimes people don't really care about them because the team isn't very good. So I, I've sort of been on, you know, like a fact finding mission early where you're trying different things. I've been, I'm doing a, a one-on-one all-time Sixers tournament right now to, to fill in for March Madness. Mm. I just did a, uh, a rewatch of the 2001 NBA Finals. And, and part of why I did that is, number one, game one of that finals with Iverson's step over is obviously like an iconic mm. Sixers moment that people are drawn to, and I knew that would have attention. But I also wanted to find out what's the audience for – the rest of the series where the Sixers lost all those games, how willing are people to sit through and and talk about and read me breaking down, you know, a series that from there turned against Philly. And I think that series is closer than a lot of people remember, but it, it was something that I wanted to find out because, you know, I could run through, there's tons of retro content for any team that I could go through and talk about the Sixers won the title in 83, that 0-1 run, they had several game sevens that they played in and won that are classics. But, you know, I, I want to know what are people looking for right now? Do they want to be reminded of painful losses? Are they willing to relive that again? Is that something that are, are people willing to watch sports that they already know the result to is also another thing that I, I'm very interested in. So, you know, I've been trying to stay on top of the news. Outside of that, doing reporting on on the things that we can still report on, I've been trying to talk to uh, arena workers around the country to learn how they've been impacted by the stoppage of, of all these different leagues because they're like a lot of uh, restaurant industry people, service industry people around the country. They are kind of just like left searching for answers right now. And so, you know, it's it's a little bit of everything is the, the short version of that answer, but just like everyone else, I'm taking this day by day and mostly listening to my audience because they're, they're the people who ultimately decide what matters and what doesn't. Yeah, for sure. I think that's, you know, Twitter can be a terrible place sometimes, but it's also the place yeah. where you interact most with your followers. And I was talking to Jenna Lane from ESPN yesterday. She covers the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and she said she actually likes about like interacting with her followers because it gives her a good idea of what the people want you know and like you said it's your audience they're the ones who will tell you in sometimes a very rude way about what they're interested in reading and what they're not interested in reading yeah and i i think the benefit of the path that i took like look i didn't go to some powerhouse journalism school and i didn't i didn't take the path that a lot of old sports writers take where you know you go to some middle of nowhere newspaper and write about high school sports and and climb the ladder in that way. I came from a blog style where my voice and my opinions and like creativity is sort of what got me in a position to be able to cover the team full time. And so, and the other part is I don't necessarily travel a ton during the regular season at the shop. I travel uh, definitely for the playoffs and I'm at all those games. I go to every home game. I do all that, but I am used to having to, you know, come up with ideas and create stories and find angles, even when I'm not necessarily with the team constantly. And so for me, 
the work from home routine has not been a huge change for me. Certainly it's like these, this is going to be a longer period of working from home and not being connected with players, coaches, et cetera, than I'm used to in the middle of the season. But I would say that I'm, I'm slightly more prepared for it than a lot of people in the industry. And I feel, you know, in a, in a weird way, somewhat thankful for that. Yeah, absolutely. That background of doing kind of a little bit of everything certainly comes in handy for times like these, even if you never thought it would. Yeah. Um, so up until everything kind of, uh, was shut down a couple weeks ago now. The Sixers were in the middle of kind of a weird season, you know, came in with a lot of high expectations, and then, you know, they're inexplicably terrible on the road, but they're really good at home and all this stuff. Um, But I think it's safe to say that they haven't, at least up until the point that we left ourselves at, they hadn't really been the team that everybody expected them to be and from your view you know your boots on the ground there this entire season what is really the main thing that went wrong this year from philadelphia that they could still fix depending on how things unfold but up until what we saw well i think the the number one thing is the miscalculation of the ability of the Embiid horford front court to work at least when they're paired with ben simmons in the backcourt but I, I know a lot of people on the outside look at this situation and say, well, Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid together can't work. I just, you know, I think the thing that I've come away from is that the only time this team works really is when they have those two guys available and they win at a high level whenever those guys are there. And so I, I understand they took a calculated risk with the Horford signing. He's a guy that they saw firsthand that he can play both front court positions in Boston. He gave Embiid a lot of problems. And they looked at a, a situation with Joel where they said, hey, look, we can get the best possible backup to Joel while also being able to put him next to Joel in the front court because historically, Horford's done okay in, in stretches where he's a power forward. He spent time there next to Aaron Baines in Boston, and those two made it work despite the fact that at that time, Aaron Baines was a, a non-shooter and was just, you know, anchored to the paint. And so the two skilled guys, two really talented guys in Embiid and Horford, I thought they could make it work, or they thought they could make it work in the front court, and that has not really worked at all. And so we we have reached a point with, with that team where Brett Brown made a decision to demote Horford to the bench and bring him off as a sort of a sixth man, a, a very well-paid sixth man. And, you know, that's still one of the, the big questions whenever this team comes back is, can this jumbled together roster and with uh, mismatching puzzle pieces actually work? And to me, the answer is no. I, I, I don't see how this is going to get better unless there's some sort of quantum leap from Ben Simmons as a shooter that changes the whole world for Philadelphia. But I think as we've seen, that is a pretty big ask. And so the first place you look is the aging big that, you know, can't really play at the same time as their best two players. That that tends to be sort of a problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would say that that definitely tends to be sort of an issue. Now, let's say for, you know, just for the hypothetical circumstance that Philadelphia continues on the path that they were on, which seemed to be a at most a second round exit in the playoffs. And I think the mood coming out of Philadelphia going into the season was this is kind of an Eastern Conference Finals or bus sort of season. So 
if they don't, if they fall short of what were the expectations from ownership and from fans and whatever, and even the team that had for themselves, if they fall short, how do you anticipate them trying to pivot in the offseason? Well, I think there would be a coaching change at the least. I, I think the writing's on the wall that save for at least a conference finals appearance, if not a, an NBA finals appearance, that uh, they're, they're probably going to move on from Brett Brown. I don't think that's any kind of secret. He, he was under a lot of pressure last year, and I think only because the players came back almost universally in support of him during exit interviews last year played a, a big role in, in giving him another shot with a different version of the team. I think the more interesting thing at this point is – if if we see, uh, let's say, like a an abridged season play out here with a comeback for the playoffs, and, and that's the outcome, like first or second round exit, I do wonder what ownership will do in terms of the front office. Because I think, uh, you know, they say all the right things with Alton Brand, that they believe in him as a lead executive, but you look at the major decisions they've made that have backfired, and you also take into consideration that, basically the entire front office that was here under Brian Colangelo is still in place under brand. So they haven't exactly been killing moves since Colangelo was the GM starting in 2016. And if they do need to make these big pivot moves potentially to try to salvage this Embiid Simmons partnership before somebody reaches a point where they ask out, can you trust brand and this entrenched front office to be the team, the, the team of people that makes the decisions to get them to where they need to go? I would argue probably not, but you know, as, as you've seen probably in the news this week, Sixers ownership, not exactly in the, the good graces of the, uh, the fan base and the public at large. So I, I have no idea what they are, are currently thinking about that part of the situation. Yeah, you mentioned the Embiid-Simmons uh, partnership there, and I think everybody, especially in sports media, is a little quick to hop on the train of talking about how the two can't work together. But as somebody who's seen them kind of develop and grow together over the last couple seasons, what's your read on their on-court fit there? You know, it, it's certainly not an ideal one. I think if you if you could get a player of equal talent for either of them that was simply a better fit. That'd be one thing. But the problem in professional sports, the NBA specifically, is that's just not the case. You trade uh, in Joel's case, I think he's a top 10-ish player. I think Ben is probably top 20-25. You, you don't trade one of those guys and get another one back. Like That just doesn't happen. You get lesser players who come with their own boards, their problems in the playoff setting. And so you kind of, to me, you have to try to ride this thing until the wheels fall off. You have to invest as many resources as you can to number one, protect Joel with his health issues. Number two, develop Ben Simmons as a shooter in whatever way that that takes. If that means he turns into a great free throw shooter first, that's great. I've always thought that's first step for him. If that means he turns into a corner three-point shooter that is comfortable uh, spacing there and, and confidently taking their shots, you got to do it. They are just—they're simply too talented to move on from at this point. If we get to a point where one of them is bristling at the idea of forming a partnership with the other one, 
then maybe I, I think that stance is worth reevaluating. But I, I think despite some of the early chatter that these guys uh, had some issues with one another, I think one one thing over the last couple of years that's been a, a, a big positive for them is I think they've grown an understanding that their best chance to win is to win together. So that, at least as far as those two are concerned, they're going to try to do what it takes to win together until someone tells them otherwise. Yeah, I think that's probably an accurate read of the situation, even if Simmons shooting corner threes seems this year like it could be never coming. But it's, you know, it's kind of like, yeah. I like, you brought up Aaron Baines earlier. I mean, I think about him whenever I feel real skeptical about Simmons because, you know, I'm a, I'm a Celtics fan personally on the side, you know, when I'm not being a journalist. And I watch, right. you know, every game from the last couple of years and Baines like shot like, you know, 10 three-pointers or something during the regular season that year before shooting them every other possession in the playoffs. So never say never is what I would say, because if you had told me in 2016, Aaron Baines would become like a 35% corner three-point shooter, I would have laughed in your face. I don't think Sixers fans would have laughed in your face because watching him in, in the, that one playoff series, you would have thought he was the greatest three-point shooter of all time. I don't think he's ever missed it. You don't quote me on this. I don't think he's ever missed a three against the Sixers. <laughs> it's remarkable. And he's only upped the volume in Phoenix. It's hilarious to watch. But anyway. It's crazy. Um, so moving on to the last part here, which are just some uh, more fun, lighter questions. You know, you said you don't travel all too often, but out of the NBA arenas that you have seen, which one is your favorite? Hmm. I haven't been to a ton, but I don't know about arenas. Toronto's been my favorite city that I've been to. The only problem was that when I went there, it was cold, and it was cold during a time where uh, Philadelphia was actually like 70 or 80 degrees, so I was traveling back and forth between the two cities. And, you know, I'm like wearing a, a winter coat in Toronto and coming home and wearing uh, shorts and a sleeveless shirt in my apartment in Philly. So that was an experience. But I, I, I greatly enjoyed the entire Toronto experience. I think like the, even down to like the staff that they have mm. at the Raptors arena in terms of PR and just, I mean, even like ushers, whatever, like everything that people say about Canadians being nice and inviting and, and helpful is a hundred percent true in my experience. <laughs> I had a I had a wonderful time in Toronto. Yeah, it seems like a great city, although the weather discrepancy is quite something. Um, oh, it was crazy. I will say too, since you're a Boston guy, the loudest I've ever heard an arena anywhere was in that series, and I guess it was 2018. I don't remember if it was game one or two in Boston, but Boston went on a huge run in the second quarter before halftime after the Sixers got out to a big lead. I want to say it was game two. Mm. And I was sitting next to Rich Hoffman of The Athletic, and it got so loud by the end of the first half that I'm not kidding you. I'm sitting two feet, one foot away from this guy trying to talk to him. And his mouth is moving, and it's like nothing is coming out of his mouth. It was so loud that we couldn't hear each other talk from right next to one another. So I, as much as Philly Boston is like this big, hated Northeast uh, sports rivalry, I, I give the Celtics fans can certainly get up for, for big games. I'll, I'll give them that. 
Yeah, music to my ears right there. And I think Embiid uh, said something similar earlier this year, if I recall correctly. He said the loudest playoff environment he'd ever been in was 2018 Boston, which blew my mind because, I mean, you know, Toronto fans are absolutely insane. And last year's Eastern Conference semifinals, you know, ended in the most preposterous way possible. I would have thought that would have taken the cake because, I mean, I was I felt like I was hard of hearing after watching that on TV. So, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, I think there's something to be said for it because Boston has this basketball history and there's a lot of, there's more basketball history in the city that people sort of know and recognize the moments of like, Oh man, they're going on a run here. And they like, there's a, an understanding in the crowd there that has always impressed me when I've been in Boston for games. So I think that might be part of it too. For sure. Um, so this could be an interesting answer because you've had quite uh, an array of experiences as a reporter over the years. What has been your favorite interview? Favorite interview you've done for whatever piece? Hmm, my favorite interview? Well, actually, the first interview, first time I was ever credentialed for a basketball game was for the night they retired Allen Iverson's jersey in, in Philadelphia. So that was like, you know... That was a very important moment for me because I I thought I would be starstruck because Iverson was he's I mean he's honestly the reason that I got into basketball at all like that 2001 Finals team was sort of my jumping off point into basketball mm-hmm. um, and so being able to be there for that was just like a really cool moment for me but also the fact that I got there and it was just like no you're just a reporter now it's not. You're, you're not uh, in awe of this guy, despite how much you meant to you as a kid. And you, know, you get that one out of the way early. And even though there, it's not like I got lots of one-on-one time or anything with him, that was just a, that was a very important, impactful experience for me. And certainly it was cool to see one of my, my childhood heroes go up in the rafters there. Yeah, absolutely. That's, uh, that's quite, a, quite a game for your first credentials there. Yeah. Well, you know, back in those days, uh, the uh, Sixers media relations now are a lot more willing to give what I would call new media chances to cover games. Back then it was tough. Mm. So I had to really, I had to really fight for that one, but luckily they, uh, they let me in the building. So I, I appreciated that. Um, What's one thing about this job that you feel like other people don't know or they don't really understand? Um, there's a lot of busy work that you have to do. I, I think one of the things I stress to kids that ask me about what I do is that, you know, it's, it's not just about like a, people be like, Oh, you get to go to games for a living. That's great. And that sounds great, but that means I'm getting to the arena for a seven o'clock game at like four thirty, and I'm doing pregame availability at five fifteen. And I'm going into the locker room at 5:45, and I'm I'm trying to get you know, you're dealing also with people like Brett Brown, the coaching staff, all the front office people are pretty good about making time for you if you if you need it. But in terms of the players, the players, rightfully so, are in game mode before the game, and then after games, if they lose, most of these guys, and I would be the same way if I were in their shoes. They don't want to talk to you. And so it's learning how to navigate those waters too. It's like, okay, I know this guy is especially surly after a loss, so I'm not going to go to him. I know this guy after a win 
will give me especially good quotes if there's a certain thing going on. And so you're balancing the the human the human aspect of that, which is very important, on top of the fact that, you know, you gotta just sit there and transcribe and do like thirty minutes worth of, of typing just for that to see what your best quotes are, unless you can take notes during the interview and, and make a note in your head of uh, I need this, this and that. Yeah. And I mean, there are nights where I, I show up to the arena at four or four thirty and I'm not leaving until one o'clock in the morning, depending on what the demand is. And that's just for like a, a normal regular season game. Say nothing about the playoffs when you're traveling, when you're going to every practice shoot around that you can possibly get to, to, you know, meet the audience's demand. So, you know, it's a very, it's a very demanding job that has a lot of different uh, angle angles. It's always fun. It's not always, hey, I'm I'm here for this big moment. Sometimes you're covering Sixers Wizards on a random Wednesday in January, and you're trying your best to to make people care about that. So it's you learn to love the process of the work and putting a story together as much as you love basketball and like being at an arena for a big event. For sure. And what is one thing about this job that you wish you knew back when you were just getting started out? Um, that's a good question. Uh, here's one. I don't know if this will be a, uh, I don't know if I necessarily should say this. A, a lot of people, a lot of the scoops that you see people present as like breaking news, that just means that they're getting it fed to them by people in public relations <laughs> earlier than other people. Like as one of the, the funniest things to me is seeing, you know, like a national level, and this isn't just in basketball, but like a national level reporter saying like sources say something uh, 30 seconds after a press release from the team has been sent <laughs> out saying the exact thing that they're saying came from a source. Yeah. And so I, I think it may be if, if myself or more people were shameless about doing that and, and presenting themselves. And like, look, there are people that get stuff in advance from sources all the time. I certainly use unnamed anonymous sources all the time in my work. It's a, a, a necessary pillar of what we do. But all I ask from my, uh, my friends in the journal, journalism industry at large is that we don't present press releases as sources say that's uh, my uh, one big ask of my colleague mm -hmm. well i would say that's as uh, you know as good an insight as any but that will conclude the interview thank you so much kyle for agreeing to join yep, thanks for having me on man anytime of course and thank you listener for tuning in i am your host lee McEwen, signing off